Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I'm on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Lisa Angel. She's a board-certified family law specialist and president and owner of the Rosen Law Firm in North Carolina. She served as chairperson of the Governor's North Carolina Domestic Violence Commission and has been named Triangle Business Journal's Top 25 Women in Business. And she's received the Outstanding Young Lawyer Award from the North Carolina Bar Association. Sharing her expertise in family law, she's the author of Divorcing Smartly and 365 Divorce Mediations. She's been at the Rosen Law Firm since 1993, and she regularly helps domestic violence victims escape their abusers. And our topic today is domestic violence and divorcing an abusive spouse. So I'm very pleased, Lisa, to welcome you to Divorce Dialogues. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it and I appreciate the invite. You know, and I'm really, as I, you know, I say in my intro that I'm on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. But domestic violence really robs victims of their dignity. And so I think it's important for our listeners to understand what actually is domestic violence. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it out there in the world. And can you right. advise as to how do you define it? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times I have victims ask me that question because they're concerned about, well, is the behavior that they're experiencing, does that count as domestic violence in our court system? What is the legal definition? And sometimes what the legal definition and what the definition of kind of abusive behavior in a relationship, sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. And so it is important to kind of understand. But when we're looking at abusive relationships, we're looking at quite a few aspects of it. One is the physical. So when someone is attempting to cause physical harm, is actually causing physical harm, or is placing someone at imminent threat of bodily injury or physical harm. And so when we do that, we kind of go through with clients, like, what are some examples of that? And that might be, you know, actual physical pushing, shoving, kicking, the things that might have the actual injuries or might have something that would show on somebody. But there's a whole, you know, range of other behaviors that are tied to that and that are included. And so that can be things like emotional abuse is also included. So threatening to hurt someone, threatening to place them in a, in a situation where they can't get out of it. Sometimes we see people who are there. They're keeping somebody from um, making contact with a friend or a family member sometimes even making contact with 911 with some kind of emergency communication. And then, of course, you know, I'm sure you see this as well. We also see that financial abuse, which means that we see victims often who are in a situation where they have no access to money, even if the marital estate is uh, quite substantial they may not have access to it. So they, they're they limited in their ability to have access to credit cards or to bank accounts or to any kind of cash flow. 
those are really the three kind of areas that we look for, physical, emotional, and financial abuse areas are some of the areas that we kind of look for those signs, look for those issues that might be coming up. And, and certainly when you're talking to, to victims, you're trying to help them strategize about, um, about ways out of those cycles. Is there a common denominator to the physical, emotional, and financial abuse that you would say sort of makes this some kind of domestic violence? Like I've heard that, you know, it's, it's about, uh, some people say it's about control, right? And, and whether yeah, or not the control is, is physical, like actually putting hands on or, and isolating so that there can be no other, so the victim has no resources to right, fight back, right. for lack of a better word. Right, exactly. And I think that, you know, and sometimes people ask, is there a typical even victim? And of course, I think you, I'm sure you've seen this in, in your practice where domestic violence really does affect all levels of society. So in terms of socioeconomic background and status in a community. But yeah, we do see a very common denominator often of control being the um, the overarching issue. And so what I have learned over time is that I have learned to kind of trust the victim in terms of his or her kind of signs of when they know it's time to leave. Because sometimes you will have a victim who will have experienced pretty dramatic and significant physical abuse during the marriage but they are leaving at a time in which they are experiencing something else. And it's it's in part because they have learned this is a time for me to be even more concerned about my safety. And I think some of that is knowing that control cycle and kind of knowing that that is the overarching, often the overarching issue. Uh, Victims often kind of learn that that's what they need to be kind of looking out for. But yes, we definitely see that as a, I guess I would say a theme, if you will. Yeah. And what is the gender balance between abuser and victim? I mean, I, I think we all typically think of, of this as a men, you know, against women kind of thing. But that's not always the truth, is it? Well, that's true. That is not always the case. Statistically, we will see the numbers are heavily more with victims as the victim being female. But, you know, what we've realized over time and victim support agencies have realized over time is that often men do not report or they don't identify as, they don't kind of identify the behavior as domestic violence or they don't, um, you know, they don't reach out for services or don't, it, it, it really will be even sometimes when they're sitting in an attorney's office and an attorney might point out, you know, that behavior qualifies as abusive behavior. And this is why that that's the first time that they're kind of that men often are aware of. And so I definitely, whenever I'm talking to groups or to training volunteers and those types of things, I always want to make sure that they're aware that men definitely are victims of domestic violence. And we want to make sure that the message gets out to them that to start to kind of be aware of that and to identify so that they can know that there be resources out there for as well. Do you think, Lisa Angel, that judges are, when we're talking about physical abuse, as sympathetic or worried about male victims as they are as female victims? And I'm just thinking I've had a few cases where it was that situation, you know, with really shocking bite marks and, you know, mm. and like really wounds 
and blood were involved. Right. And, you know, I don't right. mean to laugh about it, but, you know, go to court and the judges is like, well, this, you know, tiny person couldn't possibly have done that when, I mean, yeah, that's exactly what did happen, you know, and, and because, I don't know, I found that really quite shocking. Has, have you had that experience? Um, I think that I've, when I have pursued those types of cases in court, I've tried to also, I've kind of tried to point out the other ways that the abuse has occurred so that the, the judge can start to see, okay, you know, it is a pattern that is similar to other patterns that they've seen. And so they can kind of put that physical issue in context. And so sometimes we see is the issue defensive or is it not defensive? So we have to get into to those types of issues. But I think that when we put it in context of this person's dealing with the exact same types of patterns of behavior that we see in when the woman is the victim, sometimes it, you know, it can help the judge to kind of have a light bulb go off of, oh, wait a minute, this is really the same just reversed. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM, alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast on all popular podcast apps. And I'm talking today with Lisa Angel about divorcing an abusive spouse, domestic violence, and, and what it means. And, you know, we've been using this word victim, Lisa, and I, I have a sort of a reaction to that word, but it is the word that's used in the field. So, I mean, do you have an opinion about the use of the word victim? Well, I think that, you know, it helps to kind of characterize like what someone has been experiencing. But yes, it can be challenging for us as family law attorneys when often we are, we're trying to also put the family kind of on a more positive path. And so often that can be a, you know, a challenging word in the sense we also see people talk about being survivors. Um, And so they've made it through to the other side. And I will say it's a very challenging thing to be able to get through. I mean, our court systems are tough. They're yeah. they're tough for anyone who's been experiencing um, a domestic violence relationship. So, you know, you're definitely a survivor of you and when you make it through to the other side of this process. I like sure. survivor much better. And what, what I don't like about victim is it makes it seem like, you know, end of the road. <laughs> there's no, right. there's nothing you can do. And, and I'd raise this at this point in the conversation because I want to talk about what it is that people can do. If there is someone out listening to this interview thinking, my gosh, that's me. What can I do? You know, I'm a victim. That just sort of like, you know, that too bad. But that's not true. Right. So, Lisa, yeah. what is it? Yeah. How can someone leave a family home in the event that they're dealing with an abusive spouse? And, and how can they protect their children in that transition? Right. right. Well, the first thing I would say is that statistically, the actual separation often is a very dangerous time. And so I think that survivors, victims want to really be taking their safety at all stages of this very seriously. They, you know, it's often the case where someone will talk to a friend or a coworker and they'll say, oh, well, my, my separation was like this and it wasn't that hard and it was, it was, you know, an easy process. And, and so sometimes I see that victims or survivors maybe will not trust their instincts about taking safety precautions. So I would really, you know, encourage people to really take those 
safety precautions and be thinking about that. And that can include things like when and if you are um, separating, that you're doing it in a way in which your spouse does not have access to where you're living, that you're thinking about your finances in advance, that you're doing a lot of pre-planning that you might not do necessarily in the, in a more a collaborative setting. But when you're in a situation where domestic violence or your physical safety has been at risk at any point in the marriage, it really is important to be planning for your safety. And I am a really big believer in people going to have a consult with an attorney early on in the process. So I think it's a good idea to consider if you have the ability to find a way to at least have a consultation and that attorney can help you do that pre-planning. It could be that part of that pre-planning means getting a restraining order or some kind of a protective order. It could mean that pre-planning means moving some money and moving and moving somewhere where your spouse or partner does not know where you are for a time period. So there are lots of different options, but I think it's really important. A lot of times people assume they need to talk to an attorney later in the process, or if they talk to an attorney, it means that things are going to get more adversarial. And I think I want to encourage people to, this is a part of your safety planning is to have a conversation. Even if you can't afford an attorney, then have a conversation with your local victim services agency. Every county and community in the U.S. has some form of a domestic violence victim services agency, and those agencies are equipped with counselors that can help you plot and plan and just really strategize the safest way for you to make an exit. But just be aware, separation is a dangerous time statistically for victims. I think that's really, really good advice, not just for domestic violence survivors, but for everyone thinking right, about a divorce, right. that to do some planning and to get some advice early on so that you don't make easy to make mistakes. And exactly right. And, and that in that they could have really catastrophic results in certain circumstances and just be major inconveniences in others. But when you're dealing with a, with a violent situation, that this is really, really crucial to make sure that it's it's carefully thought out and planned to maximize safety for for both spouses but also for the children. So how can how can people thinking about this keep their children safe? Yes, and that custody in these circumstances is a really challenging issue. And I often talk to people about, you know, the different safety things that we think about when we're thinking about custody. They're very different than other circumstances where we might not have a concern about safety. And so we think about things like making sure the exchange is either taking place in a public place or it's taking place at school or at daycare, or sometimes we even are using the visitation support agencies where we're using, you know, an, an actual supervised visitation agency to do custody exchange. So the custody exchanges are often something that we need to kind of think through and and be aware of. The other thing that I would say is that I often talk to clients about what I perceive, and this is really my own thoughts about it, but what I would refer to as kind of the friendly parent bias in a way. And so in court, we would view a friendly parent really as a good parent. And generally speaking, that's true. Like when we don't have a case where we have abuse issues or neglect issues, 
we want parents to be communicating frequently, to be flexible in their schedule, to be able to be around one another without any conflict of any sort. And we want them to be giving access to children, to both parents, you know, as much as, as much as possible. And so we kind of view that parent as the good parent, the person that's doing those things. Well, for domestic violence victims, we're often giving them the exact opposite advice. So we're telling them things like, we want things to be very structured. We want their communication to be written so that we know exactly what took place. We want the exchange to take place in a public place. Sometimes we're concerned that the children's safety is at risk, and so we're wanting to limit the access that one parent might have. So, you know, I want that that victim to kind of understand that when he or she is in the system, you know, they're going to have to explain why they're asking for these different strategies and why these strategies are actually a safety issue, not necessarily a parent that's being difficult or a parent that's being inflexible in any way. So I, I really try to help clients to understand, you know, how they might be perceived and to be ready for that and to be preparing for that and to be really strategizing about that if they're headed for any kind of real serious custody dispute. I'm Catherine Miller. This is Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM, alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30. But you might also be listening to us as a podcast on the website, www.divorcedialogues.com or on any podcast app. And I'm talking today with Lisa Angel about domestic violence and divorce and how to divorce an abusive spouse. And Lisa Angel, uh, I'm wondering if people have interest in finding out more about you or your publications, how can they reach you and find out what you have to offer? Yeah, definitely. So my firm is the Rosen Law Firm, and we practice in um, Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill, in the Triangle area of North Carolina. And our website is rosen.com, R-O-S-E-N, rosen.com, or ncdivorce.com. And it's a great resource for North Carolina divorce. We have all of the statutes, all cases, forms, child support calculator. We do webinars. We have tons and tons of information about North Carolina divorce, lots of videos and tutorials on how to manage the process from beginning to end. So um, you can reach out to us there. And we're, we try to constantly be adding more and more resources to our website. So that's ntdivorce.com or rosen.com, either way. Thank you so much. And so let me ask you this, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and I think mm-hmm. tensions are running much higher than, yeah. than you know, quote, normal. And, right. and, and what is your experience on how COVID and the pandemic has influenced domestic violence? You know, what we were seeing very early on, we noticed that Actually, on our website traffic, we noticed domestic violence, that area, that landing page on our website was getting an enormous amount of traffic, and yet we weren't seeing the filings actually um, changing at all. And so what we became concerned about was that, you know, for a while during our lockdown, um, we were concerned that people thought that the domestic violence courtroom was closed, which it was not in North Carolina. And so we were trying to send out the message that we wanted victims and survivors to know that, you know, they still had options, that we are not kind of having to stay in this environment. But I do think any time that there are, you know, now we have child care issues. We have people who are having insecurity related to job or to income. 
So it's normally very challenging for someone to leave an abusive relationship. There's a lot of things working against that person. So with COVID, we have certainly an added level of, of issues. But I do want people to know that there are still resources out there. There are still help out there. There's still, you know, there are still people that are, that are moving forward and um, able to get to a, a better place of safety. We certainly see in times of stress more incidents of domestic violence. And so, you know, we are very concerned about victims that are out there and we really appreciate you doing this topic right now because I think it's really helpful for people to know that there's hope and there is a place that they can go and there's a domestic violence support agency everywhere um, across the U.S. that will be able to help them and get them through it. Lisa Angel, I think that's really great. And I know that you're in North Carolina and I'm in New York and, you know, listeners could be all over the country. But how I, I think there's enough similarity to talk about how to bring a domestic violence case in a courtroom, what kinds of protections there are for right. survivors um, or for people who are experiencing this or thinking they do. Uh, so let's talk about some of those options. Sure. So every state has some version of what we would refer to as a domestic violence protective order or a domestic violence emergency order. And the way that generally speaking that process works is that the the plaintiff, the person that is requesting the relief, is able to do that in a way that we refer to as ex parte, E-X-P-A-R-T-E, which is, you know, without the other side being present, just a Latin phrase that means that. So you're able to go to the court, and a lot of times often this is remote. This is happening remote in, a, in our state right now. But you're able to file a, a lawsuit, and you're requesting, you're, you're letting the court know that some type of abuse has occurred. And this is where the states change a little bit about where, you know, what how they define it. But generally, they're defining it as some act of physical harm some threat of physical harm or some verbal threat of physical harm. And so you're you're spelling that out in this lawsuit that you're filing. And most states have forms that are able to be accessed online to use for this purpose. And then you are giving that information to the court without your spouse knowing it's happening. So the first part is that, you you know, the, um, the defendant does not know that you're there. Then if the judge decides that that order should be issued, then the sheriff or whatever local law enforcement is then going to serve that person with it. And most states um, have some form of an eviction order that's possible through that domestic violence protective order. So that could be evicting your spouse from a house, whether it's titled jointly or, or not titled jointly. And then... The court will allow that person to come back and to kind of tell their side. And that's what we often refer to as a return hearing. And so that's the chance for that defendant to say, yes, that's, that act did happen or didn't happen. The court will then make another ruling. And that will then have that order last for a time period. Some states are a year. Some states are two years. So and in those orders, we often see custody, child custody be something that the court can do, sometimes possession of certain personal property. Some states will allow for some kind of uh, temporary financial support to be placed into that order. But generally speaking, the process is always going to be first. The victim is doing it without their spouse or their partner knowing anything about it, um, ex parte, and then a return hearing so that both sides can kind of say what happened. 
And we only have a few seconds left, but the idea would be to protect the, uh, the person who was asking for this protective order in order to allow them to live unmolested by the other person. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So it would start the separation. That's right. All right, Lisa Angel, thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogues and talking about divorcing an abusive spouse. I think it's been really useful information. Thank you. I appreciate the invite.